Amen. Please turn with me to Psalm uh, 115. Um, I have an illustration for you. Anybody have a hard time seeing the numbers or the images? There's an image. Anybody have a hard time seeing that? Okay, I got one other person. <laughs> I knew, I, yeah, I knew there'd be at least, at least two. Um, so the rest of you are not freaks like us. Um, there are in these images for, for you two, there's, uh, I, I can't see it. Like I see, I look at that and I see nothing. Um, I'm told there's a two and a nine up there, but I can't see it because uh, I'm colorblind, right? Uh, I have a form of colorblind. It's called extreme duton, right? And so I don't, I don't see these things. And I first discovered this when I was in junior high. I was a psychology class, right? And the teacher's holding up these, uh, these pallets and, and saying, okay, everybody just call out the number that's on this pallet. And, and every you know, students are going, yeah, two, nine, six, eight, whatever. And finally I raised my hand. I go, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm not that. I don't see anything here. Gasp. Right? Everybody, oh, you know, and, and, and then uh, all my friends made fun of me. I'm the only one in that class who couldn't, who couldn't see any, any of these things. And now my kids have discovered that I'm colorblind. And so now my kids make fun of me. That, uh, you know, they just like to, to, it's like sharks with blood in the water. They just want to dwell on this vulnerability that I have here. And so I, I promise you, my son has subjected me to at least 12, 15 colorblind tests. He goes, let's try it again, dad. Let's try it again. Right. And he puts up another image. I got, I got nothing. He goes, you, you can't, you see this? What, what is wrong with you? I go, we know, we know. I said, here's, there's nothing wrong with me. Really. I just see the world differently. He goes, no, dad, you see the world wrong. <laughs> no, I, I just see the world differently than you may see the world. Now, the fact is this. We all see the world a little bit differently, right? Based upon our culture that we're raised in and the family we're raised in or our profession, our training, there are certain things that just kind of leap out to us and other things that we're blind to and often we don't even know why that is or what we're missing, right? But the fact is this. At the end of the story, all of us actually uh, see the world wrong at some level, Right, we're born, in a sense, with a set of lenses that cause us to see the world in a, a, a bent way, a skewed way, a way that's actually not completely true or, or accurate. And we're all born with this. Oops, I want to back up here. We're born with um, these two lenses, lens of self-gratification and self-glorification. That is, we look at everything in the world through the lens of me. Right, what's good for me? What will please me? What will gratify me? What will bring honor to me and to my name? What will exalt me? And I don't really care that much that it's going to put other people down in the process. Those are the lenses through which we view the world. And uh, the Jewish people were taught to exchange those lenses, right, for two different lenses. The lens of of God's gratification and God's glorification. This is how we should actually view the world, uh, the Jews were told. Um, Think first about God. What really pleases God? What is good for God? What brings honor to his name and to his reputation? And for us as Christians, the moment that we actually believe in Jesus Christ, we're given a new set of lenses. We're given this new capacity to actually see the world as it truly is from God's perspective. We get to see reality. And then what happens after we first trust in Jesus Christ and get these new set of lenses, in a sense, is that the Spirit just begins to slowly cleanse them. 
right? So more and more and more we're seeing not through this lens dimly or darkly, but clearly and accurately. And we're beginning to see life as God sees it. I love uh, the way C.S. Lewis summarizes it. He says this, I believe in God like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything, right? That's, that's sanctification. More and more and more, it's not that I see God himself, but I see from God everything else making sense. And that's what we need from the Lord. And we need frequently, consistently, to stop and let the Spirit just cleanse our lenses so that we can see truth. Now, Psalm 15 is, in a sense, it's one of those psalms that helps us to stop and reset. And say, well, okay, maybe I'm not actually looking at the world as it truly is, and let me see it as God sees it. And so, we're going to study Psalm 115 this morning. I want you to begin by reading with me the first three verses. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The psalmist says, let's start at the very beginning. We, pro- we proclaim God is preeminent. We declare God is above all. There is, there is none like God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Let's just reset. Because we've been going through the daily motions all about ourselves. For our own gratification, for our own glory, and we just need to stop and say, no, that's really, we know it, God. That's not what life is all about. Now, let me put this uh, psalm in context. It probably was written... Shortly after the Jews returned from exile. Remember, the northern kingdom was taken into exile by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was taken into exile by the Babylonians. And the reason they were taken into exile, three reasons actually, was uh, first, they didn't honor the Sabbath. They didn't set aside time to stop and say, we're living for ourselves and we're trusting in ourselves and we need to stop doing that. And we need to focus all of our attention on God and declare again God's preeminent. Right? They didn't honor the Sabbath. They just didn't stop. They, as a result, they turned to idols. The idols of the people around them. And they began to worship like the people around them. They didn't stop and just honor God. Instead, they honored all kinds of false gods. And their world became more and more clouded from reality. And the result was that they stopped caring for the vulnerable in their midst. They didn't pay attention to the poor or the orphans or the widows or the strangers who came through. That was just a a reflection of this deep commitment to self and not to others. And so God took the northern kingdom away and then he took the southern kingdom away, but he made a promise that he would restore them to their land and brought them back. But in bringing them back, he didn't immediately put all of life back in order for them. Instead, they came back and they were living amongst enemies in their own land. And so they were struggling, and they were suffering, and their enemies uh, taunted them. Verse 2, why should the nation say, where now is their God? Right? They came back into their land. It's their land, but it's not really their land. They're living in poverty. They're still living under oppressive foreign rule, and their enemies say, so where's your God? He threw you off of the land, and apparently he's left. Your circumstances really haven't improved at all. Where's your God? They're taunting the people of God as they return, and they're, they're tempting the people of God uh, to actually 
been their way. We can see our gods. We can't even see your God, and your God is clearly not active at all, but we can see our gods. They're right here. Why don't you follow us? And the Jews who've returned to the land are like, we don't want to go back there. We, we know why we were thrown out of the land, and, and we believe, we trust in our unseen God. In fact, we believe more in what we don't see than what we do see. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Because our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The psalmist declares, he says, well, you can't see our God because our God is transcendent. That's right, he doesn't live here and he doesn't dwell in houses and he doesn't dwell in huts. He's transcendent and he's powerful. He does whatever he pleases. He doesn't just bend to the will of man or do what men tell him to do or what men trick him or entice him to do. Our God is transcendent. He's wholly other and we trust in him. And in this, there's an implicit request that God would act on their behalf. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Lord, because of your character, right? We're not, we're not asking you because we deserve it. We knew, know we were removed from the land because of our unfaithfulness. We've been restored because of who you are, your loving kindness. That is your loyal love. This is the, the, the adjective that describes God in terms of his covenant. Very familiar, common Hebrew word, chesed. It means, God, you're loyal. You made promises. And because of your, your trustworthiness or your, your truth, Literally, it's, it's God, it's your reliability. Remember, this is a word that was used to describe the pillars in the temple. God, you're loyal in your covenant and you don't change, so would you act? Would you act? It's a psalm that was written uh, right after the Jews returned from exile and it's a psalm that commemorated the exodus. Right, psalm 113 through 118 and then Psalm 136 were sung during the Passover feast. And they were celebrating God's faithfulness. So you'll recall that the people were in slavery in Egypt and they were suffering. And they called out and they said, God, have you forgotten us? And God said, I have not forgotten. God, are you strong enough to deliver us? Because we're in Egypt. You know, Egypt is the strongest nation on earth. And Pharaoh is the greatest ruler who's ever lived. God, have you forgotten us? God, are you powerful enough? And God said, no, I, I, I remember. And I love you. And I made a promise to you through Abraham. And I reminded Abraham's son that I would, sons that I would bring you back into the land. And so let me act and let me show my power. And so as the people come back into the land, and since they're in similar circumstances, they're suffering, they're struggling, and they're wondering, God, have you forgotten us? God, do you still love us? God, are you strong enough to deliver us? Well, we're going to declare that we trust you. We're going to have confidence today, even when we're struggling, because of what you have done in the past. We know we can trust in you. You were faithful in the past, and your character hasn't changed, and so we declare, God, you are greater than all. In fact, if you look in the book of Isaiah, the people were exhorted to do just this. The Lord said, remember what I accomplished in antiquity. Truly, I am God. I have no peer. I am God, and there is none like me. So the psalmist says, in the midst of all the struggles and the trials and the cares and the concerns, the worries of the world that you happen to carry into this moment, can we just stop and say, we declare 
God, there's none like you. And we trust you. We trust you, God. You're above all gods. And we denounce all substitutes, all imitations of you. Why should the nations say we're now as their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does actually whatever he pleases. On the other hand, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're pretty impotent, right? The enemies are saying, where is your God? And the psalmist says, let's talk about your gods for a minute if we can. The enemies are saying, where's your God? It appears that he's abandoned you. We can see our gods. And the psalmist says, well, we believe more in the unseen than in the seen, right? And that's really what the people of faith throughout all generations have always said. Well, we look not at that which is seen, but that which is unseen. For that which is seen is temporal, but that which is unseen is eternal. We trust our God. Let's talk a minute about your gods. They're idols. They're just idols. You know, I know for us in the modern world, it's a little difficult for us sometimes to con- connect really conceptually to idolatry because in, in our culture, you don't see a lot of um, blocks of wood or, you know, silver carved or gold uh, in our homes or out publicly. It's just not something we naturally connect with. So we need to step back for a minute and, and think about what's the, really at the root of the concept of an idol or, or a false god. What is What do humans think about as they're creating a concept of God? Well, essentially, uh, the the human concept of God is this. I need to to have something that uh, can give me what I want. But I'm looking for a power that can be a resource to get me what I want. And the, the one true God doesn't actually bend to that idea, so we invent our own. That's an idol. It's something that we invent to get what we want. Because we're looking at the world, remember, through these lenses of self-gratification and self-glorification. I want what I want, and I want it now, and God's not really bending to that, so I'm going to go get it myself. That's an idol. So it can be anything that we pursue for ourselves in our own name, for our gratification, our pleasure, our honor, our glory. That's what an idol is. And so the psalmist says, let's expose that. Because remember the, the big three reasons why they were removed? They didn't stop and say, we'll give God his time, Sabbath. We'll trust in him. We'll stop working and, and just worship. We'll hit reset. We didn't do that. Turn to idols. And the result became even more self-centered and oppressed the poor and the vulnerable and the needy. But we don't want to go back to that place. So let's, let's expose, let's pull back the veil for a minute on idols. A few characteristics that are revealed. First is this. Idols only appear to be valuable. He says, their idols are silver and gold. There's an appearance of value, but they're the work of man's hands. In fact, the word for idol is often uh, substituted for a synonym, which means literally a lie. Okay, the word lie is sometimes used to describe an idol. There's a great description in Isaiah 44 where he talks about the man who goes and he chops down a tree and he begins to carve an idol, but he's hungry. So he takes some of the wood that he's using to make an idol and he puts it in the fire and he burns it and he, he makes some food because he's getting hungry and tired. And so he eats it and then he picks up his idol and he holds it and he, he loves it and adores it and worships it and puts offerings in front of it. And it says, can't that man at some point just say to himself, is there not a lie in my right hand? Idol, lie, it's lying. It appears valuable, 
but it's not. Second characteristic is that it is uh, inherently weak. Lacks power. Verse 5. You carve them well and they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They cannot even make a sound with their throat. The idea here in this last phrase is they can't actually even clear their throat. It's not that they can't even speak. They can't go. Utterly and completely powerless. Why? Because they're limited by man's own capacities. It's the man who makes the thing. And he can't make a thing that's greater or stronger than himself. In Isaiah chapter 44, a blacksmith works his tool and forges metal over the coals. He forms it with hammers. He makes it with his strong arm, but then he gets hungry and loses energy. He drinks no water and he gets tired. He's finite, and so whatever he makes is limited by his limitations. So why do we choose idols other than God or in place of God? Because well, we want control of our lives. And I can't, I can't tell you, I mean, how many conversations that are counseling conversations or discipling conversations, that at the root of it, what it comes down to is just waiting. We just don't want to wait. We want to take control of things. And so we, we make these idols that we think we can control. Because they're our creation. But how strong can they be? You know, when the wind and the waves of all of life's circumstances come crashing down upon us. It says in Isaiah 41, it says that the man makes an idol that, that won't totter. Right? He wants to make one and he's going to actually secure it with nails into the floor. He's going to try and drill it down deep because when the really hard trials come, he doesn't want it just to fall over. He needs it to be strong so he can trust it and put all of his weight upon it. But if he made it, it's going to be weak. It's stupid. It's stupid. It's foolish. In fact, in Romans 1, it talks about idolaters. The Greek word literally is moron. <laughs> They're a moron to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Same thing. We want control of it, or we're just sometimes just uh, embarrassed to, to live in this world in, in kind of a foolish way uh, when you know, our whole concept of the world around us and the people around us see is what's real is what's tangible and you can see. And here we are standing up and saying, we believe more in unseen than seen. How ridiculous is that and we don't really want to appear foolish to our friends and our family and our co-workers so so why do you get up early on Sunday why do you pray into the air and sing into the air and you say words into the air because we believe that sounds kind of ridiculous so we we get tempted and we turn to the idols my fourth characteristic of these idols is that they destroy the worshipers. Look at verse 8. It says, Those who make them will actually become like them. Everyone who trusts in them, whatever we worship, we become like. In other words, idolatry uh, is not a harmless thing. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, this is what the Lord says, What fault could your ancestors have possibly found in me that they strayed so far from me? They paid allegiance to worthless idols, and so they became worthless. They became like what they, they worshipped. Small God, small people. And so the psalmist says, uh-uh. 
We will not go back there. We declare God's preeminence above all things. We denounce all substitutes. Third, we declare God's goodness. Verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He's not forgotten us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. We are people who will stop and say, we trust God to be good to us. Why? Because we look back, not just on our own earthly circumstances to see his goodness. What we look back on is we look back and we see the cross. And we see a God that we worship who is willing to take on human flesh and suffer for us. But as he loved us so deeply that he was willing to take on all of our infirmities, all of our sickness, all of our sin, all of our brokenness. And he's a God who's strong. In his power, he paid the penalty completely and utterly. And his father raised him from the dead so that we have life. And so we look back on that event, and like Israel looking back to the Exodus, that deliverance from slavery, and we say, we have been delivered. And we will yet be delivered. And we trust God's goodness, and we trust his power, and we trust his strength. And so we move forward, even in the midst of suffering and challenging circumstances in life. We're there, right? We're there. And then finally, he closes with this. We declare our allegiance to him. Verse 16, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. This is what he's saying. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, right? This matter is settled in heaven. It's not up for debate or discussion, and all the angelic hosts get it. They're not, they're not trying to worship each other. Uh, they're, they're not worshiping false gods. They see God. At least in part, they see his glory. And they're not tempted. It's settled in heaven. It says, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. On earth, in this lifetime, he allows us to make a choice. Will we live wisely and well? And pursue that which is true and real. Will we allow God's spirit to clean those lenses And pursue a life that really, truly is significant on this earth, right? So that's verse 16. And then 17 and 18 say, here are the two paths. Let's choose well and wisely. Verse 17, he says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. That is, those who choose to follow false gods and live for self-gratification and self-glorification. Their life is, it's a vapor, it's a mist, it's silent. It's it's, It's a breath that's gone. But as for us... We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what we choose to live for, both now and forever. And so how do we apply this? Uh, Let me give you a couple of ideas. Uh, As we're making application, if I can get the servers to go back and get prepared uh, for communion for us. Uh, You know who your worst enemy is? You're your worst enemy. I'm, I'm my worst enemy, self. Right, this deep and abiding commitment to myself. Self-gratification, self-glorification, I'm, I'm born with this. Believing and trusting that I can make life work and figure it out and solve the issues and the problems. That's my worst enemy. And periodically I just need to stop and I need to say, no, you know, that, that's just foolishness. That's a lie. That's an idol. And I'm going to let God uh, hit reset for me. 
So it says in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us. Right? This is where it starts. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory because of your loyal love. You are faithful. You are truth. You are reliable. You never change. And so we trust you. You have said this is life and we follow you. And so we as Christians, we look back at the cross and we say, yeah, we trust God's goodness in the past. And we trust because of the cross that he's going to work all things out in the future. And so we don't have to spend life chasing. We can just spend life trusting and worshiping. So as we celebrate communion this morning, let's just take a few moments, go before the Lord and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we look back at the cross and we see your goodness that you were willing to pay the debt of our sin. We see your power that you raised the son from the dead. We trust in you. So now as we look at our present circumstances, we can trust in you. We look at the future, we can trust in you. And all of that is because we have Jesus Christ. So if I can't ask the servers to come forward... Uh, We'll wait until everyone is served, and then we'll take the cup and the bread together. Shortly before Jesus went to the cross, he took uh, two really common items, uh, items that appeared on every table, at every meal, and he infused new meaning into these items. First was just bread, which, as you know, was more more probably like a, a Ritz cracker, right? It was... It was uh, hard and crusty, and he took it and he he broke it, and that was a symbol. It was a symbol of his body. So this is my body, my body broken for you because your sin causes pain and suffering in your life and in the world. And for me to pay the penalty for that, I'm going to have to enter into that suffering. So he took the bread and he broke it in front of them, and he said, every time you break this bread, I want you to think of me. I want you to slow down and stop, and I want you to think of how good I am to you and how much I love you, that I was willing to suffer so much for you on your behalf so that you could be reconciled to me and to the Father. So let's take the bread and break it together. And then Jesus took a cup of wine, which again was at every meal, uh, on every table, And he said, this uh, wine is my blood. It represents my blood because I'm going to have to suffer, but suffer all the way to the point of death on your behalf. And so every time you pick up this cup and you drink this wine, I want you to stop and think about how deeply I love you, how good I am to you, and how powerful I am to actually remove completely forever the debt of your sin. Not because of anything wonderful that you have done to others or for me, but simply because of the price that I have paid for your sin. So every time you drink that cup, I want you to remember me and think of me. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for the cross and the reminder of your your goodness and kindness to us. We're thankful, Father, for the reminder of your power that though Jesus bore the weight of all of our sins, The sacrifice was enough, the suffering was enough, and you raised him from the dead so that death could never touch him again. So through him, we could have not just the the, the removal of our debt, but that we could have the hope and the promise of life and life that that lasts forever and life that is perfection and and life that doesn't include suffering and, and trials and fears and all of the anguish and all of our foolishness is removed. And we have all of that because of the cross. So we look back and we look at the cross and we're reminded of the empty tomb and the resurrection. And we know that you've been faithful in the past and that's your character to be faithful in the present and the future. 
And so we worship you and we thank you for that because of Jesus. false gods, all foolish things. You are above all of the things that we chase after, that we think we can control or bring us life. Instead, uh, it's you. Not, and, and it's not to us, Father. We, we, don't, we don't live and move and exist and breathe ultimately for ourselves, but for you. And the beautiful uh, paradox in that is, as we give our lives completely to exalting you, we find life. We find our greatest fulfillment and satisfaction. So we pray, Father, this week that you would... Um, Just pull back that veil from our eyes, just clean the lens, allow us to see truth and reality as it really is as we live for you and your honor and your your pleasure in everything that we do and say and think and feel. Thank you, Father, for giving us these moments just to pause and, and to reflect and to reset life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.